At the end of 20 years, during which Solomon built these two buildings, the Temple of the Lord and the Royal Palace, King Solomon gave 20 towns in Galilee to Hiram, king of Tyre, because Hiram had supplied him with all the cedar and pine and gold he wanted. But when Hiram went from Tyre to see the towns that Solomon had given him, he was not pleased with them. What kind of towns are these you have given me, my brother? he asked. And he called them the land of Kabul, a name they have to this day. Now Hiram had sent to the king 120 talents of gold. Here is the account of the forced labor King Solomon conscripted to build the Lord's temple, his own palace, the supporting terraces, the wall of Jerusalem, and Hazor, Megiddo, and Giza. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had attacked and captured Giza. He had set it on fire. He killed its Canaanite inhabitants and then gave it as a wedding gift to his daughter, Solomon's wife. And Solomon rebuilt Giza. He built up Lower Beth Horon, Balath, and Tadmor in the desert within his land, as well as all his store cities and the towns for his chariots and for his horses, whatever he desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and throughout all the territory he ruled. All the people left from the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, these people were not Israelites, that is, their descendants remaining in the land whom the Israelites could not exterminate. These Solomon conscripted for his slave labor force, as it is to this day. But Solomon did not make slaves of any of the Israelites. They were his fighting men, his government officials, his officers, his captains, and the commanders of his chariots and charioteers. They were also the chief officials in charge of Solomon's projects. 550 officials supervising the men who did the work. After Pharaoh's daughter had come up from the city of David to the palace Solomon had built for her, he constructed the supporting terraces. Three times a year, Solomon sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings on the altar he had built for the Lord, burning incense before the Lord among with them, and so fulfilled the temple obligations. King Solomon also built ships at Ezion Geber, which is near Elath in Edom, on the shore of the Red Sea. And Hiram sent his men, sailors who knew the sea, to serve the fleet with Solomon's men. They sailed to Ophir and brought back 420 talents of gold, which they delivered to King Solomon. When the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relation to the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. Arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan, with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all that she had on her mind. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers, and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. She said to the king, The report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true, but I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told to me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your men must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. 
Praise be to the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. And she gave the king 120 talents of gold, large quantities of spices and precious stones. Never again were so many spices brought in as those the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Hiram's ships brought gold and offer, and from there they bought great cargoes of almug wood and precious stones. The king used the almug wood to make supports for the temple of the Lord and for the royal palace, and to make harps and lyres for the musicians. So much almug wood has never been imported or seen since that day. King Solomon gave the Queen of Sheba all she desired and asked for, besides what he had given her out of his royal bounty. Then she left and returned with her retinue to her own country. The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents, not including the revenues from merchants and traders and from all the Arabian kings and governors of the land. King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 600 beakers of gold went into each shield. He also made 300 small shields of hammered gold with three minus of gold in each shield. The king put them in the palace of the forest of Lebanon. Then the king made a great throne inlaid with ivory and overlaid with fine gold. The throne had six steps and its back had a rounded top. On both sides of the seat were armrests, with a lion standing beside each of them. Twelve lions stood on the six steps, one at either end of each step. Nothing like it had ever been made for any other kingdom. All King Solomon's goblets were gold, and all the household articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver, because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's days. The king had a fleet of trading ships at sea along with the ships of Hiram. Once every three years, it it returned carrying gold, silver, and ivory, and apes and baboons. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift— articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons and spices, and horses and mules. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones, and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Kew, The royal merchants purchased them from Kew. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the Armeans. We'll continue with a second reading in the book of Revelation, chapter 21. I'll start reading at verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. 
On the gates were written the the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the name of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. He measured its wall and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measurement, which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysopras, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is God's word. Morning, everybody. It's lovely to be with you this morning. If we haven't met, my name's Matt Banks. I'm one of the ministers here at Christchurch Mayfair. I feel like after two readings like that, you almost don't need a sermon. What, what wonderful, wonderful descriptions of the hope that everyone who trusts in Jesus has to look forward to. Amazing. Let me pray before we begin. Oh Lord God, we've already heard wonderful things from your word and now as we turn our hearts and minds to think about them more deeply, please take our thoughts and our hearts and our concerns away from the things of this world. Would would they grow dim as we fix our eyes on what is to come? Amen. A uh, friend of mine, a guy I went to, well he's actually one of my lecturers at Bible College, where I was a few years ago, tells of the story of a family trip to Disneyland. And, um, oh, there's some people, are you going soon Andy? You, you seem very excited by that. Well anyway, it is exciting, it is exciting going to Disneyland and um, uh, his little girl was particularly excited because today was the day of the Disney Princess Parade. And so I think she nagged her dad and the family, can we go, 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 can we get there early, I really want a good seat, I really want a good thing at the front, can we go? And so they did, and so they got there early, and they waited, and they waited and waited, and the, the minutes stretched out, when it probably wasn't that long, but to his little girl it seemed like forever. And she started getting a bit agitated. She started to sort of misbehave a little bit. She started to kind of look around and think, oh, I can't see very much, is this all there is? What she needed, though, was her dad's perspective. He's a very tall man. I think he's even taller than... He's about the same size as Dickie. He's a tall guy. What, what she needed was her dad's perspective. 
because over the, over the heads of everybody else, he could already see the glorious Disney castle lit up and in all its majesty on a float coming over the horizon. Well, probably sort of round the corner from McDonald's or something like that. I don't know. But the, the, the amazing Disney castle coming over the horizon. And the point is, if the little girl could have seen what he could see, she'd have had hope. She'd have stopped getting agitated. She'd have had hope. And I'm sure, I can't remember exactly what happened, but I'm sure he sort of picked her up and put her on his shoulders so that she could see what was coming. My prayer for this morning is really that, in a, that, that as it were, God would put us on his shoulders so that spiritually we would have that eternal perspective so that we would be able to see what is coming over the horizon, so that we wouldn't be people who lose hope now, so that we wouldn't be people who think, oh, well, is, this, is this all there is? So that we would be people who know that there is more to come. So that's my prayer, that's the aim for this morning. You can follow uh, on the back of the service sheet. There's a reasonably detailed this week handout of where we're going to be going. Now, if you've, uh, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you'll realize that we're working through this whole book of 1 Kings. And we've spent all our time so far looking at the life of King Solomon. And we've noticed that... Um, I was going to say he's a strange character. Actually, he's not a strange character. He's exactly like us, in as much as he, he's contradictory. In many ways, he, he's a man who loves the Lord, who wants to give the Lord his best and do his best for the Lord, but he, he's compromised. He easily, easily wanders away after other things. And actually, I don't know if you noticed as... Um, uh, Liz read, there, there are one or two things, at least in, in the back end of chapter 9 and chapter 10, that are a little bit concerning about Solomon's conduct. We're not going to spend much time on, on those concerning things this week, because in a few weeks' time, we're going to come back to chapter 11 and do a little bit of a retrospective about all the ways in which Solomon wandered. And the reason we're not going to focus on those things today is because I think that the overwhelming tone of um, certainly chapter 10 is positive. I think the all, and even, as, even as you read it out, you get such a sense of the grandeur of Solomon's kingdom. This is, this is the golden age, the high point of Solomon's kingdom. And that's our first point. The author wants us to be in no doubt that life under King Solomon was breathtaking. Life under King Solomon was breathtaking. We'll focus mainly on chapter 10, we'll dip back a bit into chapter 9. And we're going to see how breathtaking this kingdom was under those uh, three subheadings. Godly wisdom, abundance, and the spread of God's fame. So I don't know if you, I don't know if you agree with me, it seems to me that the, the, the wisdom of Solomon, Solomon's godly wisdom is brought to the fore by the author's description of the visit of the Queen of Sheba, uh, verses 1 to 13. See, uh, it, it was unusual then, as it, as it still is today, for a head of state to visit another head of state. I mean, you just have to look at all the, the media coverage of the Chinese uh, premier visiting, visiting London this last week to see what a big deal it was. 
And it was no different then. I suppose the only difference was they didn't have uh, chartered airplanes that could kind of uh, get you to Heathrow. The Queen of Sheba would have travelled about a thousand miles from the south, from what is um, modern-day Yemen. Not not a trip you'd undertake lightly, but she bothers. She bothers to make that thousand-mile trip because she has heard of King Solomon's wisdom. Uh, look at verse one, chapter ten, verse one. We're on page um, page three four eight. If you closed your Bibles. Chapter 10, verse 1. When the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relation to the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. And then verse 3. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. Don't know exactly what sort of hard questions they were. And maybe she was a complete geek and she was like, well, if a camel travels at six miles an hour and a goat travels at four miles an hour and one starts at Emmaus and one starts at Jerusalem, where do they meet? It might, might have been those kind of things. I, Probably not. Well, she might, she might have been a geek. I don't know. But um, you remember, remember what we saw all the way back in chapter 4? Don't turn to it, but for your notes, if you're taking notes, chapter 4, verse 32. We were told this about King Solomon, that he spoke 3,000 proverbs. His songs numbered 1,005. He described plant life from the seed of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of walls. He also taught about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. So he's sort of some sort of cross between uh, Benedict Cumberbatch and Bear Grylls. He's a man you can sit down and sort of discuss about nature and life and science. But also, of course, he was a, and this is what was picked up in chapter chapter nine and ten, we just had read. He was also a fine and effective statesman. You know, he knew how to interact with his trading partner Tyre. He had obviously a very robust. A special relationship with King Hiram. They were able to sort of weather the storm of Solomon sort of fobbing him off for some slightly dodgy cities. So perhaps she asked him about that. How, how do you operate effectively in the ancient Near East, which is where they were at the time? Uh, Solomon also knew how to get massive public building works off the ground. Just have a look over at chapter 9, verse 17. Chapter 9, verse 17. After the brackets. Solomon built up Lower Beth Horon, Balath, and Tadmor in the desert within his land, as well as all his store cities and the towns for his chariots and for his horses. Whatever he desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and throughout all the territory he ruled. He was a prolific builder of public works. Perhaps the Queen of Sheba said, how do you do it? What's the best funding structure? PFI, or I don't know, whatever. Not PFI. That's the, that's the thing the banks sell you, isn't it? The other ones that the government went into a few years ago. Perhaps she was asking him about that. Uh, perhaps she asked him about what underpinned it all. How, what is, what is the, what are the cultural values of such a wonderful nation as yours? And he would have told her, well, it is worshipping the Lord. Chapter 9, verse 25. Three times a year, Solomon sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings on the altar he had built for the Lord, burning incense before the Lord along with them, and so fulfilled the temple obligations. Perhaps you asked him about any of those things. But what she did know, what she came to observe, was that God, Solomon's wisdom overflowed into society so that 
the wisdom of the king made society a wonderful place to live in. Look at chapter 10, verse 7. I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your men must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. She recognizes what a blessing Solomon brings to the nation as he rules with justice and righteousness. So Solomon's kingdom is breathtaking because of the godly wisdom in it. But it's also breathtaking because of the abundance of it. Look back at chapter 9, 26 and 28. Chapter 9, 26, 28. King Solomon also built ships at Ezion Geba, which is near Elath in Edom, on the shore of the Red Sea. And Hiram sent his men, sailors who knew the sea, to serve in the fleet with Solomon's men. They sailed to Ophir and brought back 420 talents of gold, which they delivered to King Solomon. There's an abundance in this kingdom. Uh, I was trying to work out how, how much 420 talents of gold weighs. I don't know, Googling. You know those gold bars that you always see in the movies, like Goldfinger, Fort Knox? Those kind of gold bars. Well, 420 talents weighs as much as 1,200 of those gold bars. So it's not insignificant amount of gold. Uh, and, and that's just before we get to the description of the Queen's visit. There's even, there's even more abundance in the Queen's visit. Did you read, um, uh, talking about the visit of the uh, uh, Chinese uh, president... Uh, did you read one of the gifts he gave to the Queen? Was a, was, were two albums of his wife's Chinese folk songs that she's recorded. I think, oh, <laughs> yes, one likes to have <laughs> a diverse collection on one's iPad, or iPod. I mean, I don't know what, I don't know what she would have said to that. I mean, it's a, it seems a bit of a strange gift to me, but anyway. Anyway, the gifts that the Queen of Sheba brings uh, are far more opulent. Uh, look at chapter 10, verse 2. Arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan, with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones. And then skipping down to chapter 10, verse 10. And she gave the king 120 talents of gold. That's only 340 weight of gold bars. Large quantities of spices and precious stones. Never again were so many spices brought in as those the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. But actually it's from verse 14 of chapter 10 that the author of 1 Kings really ramps up this description of abundance. Uh, In particular, he emphasizes gold. Gold um, Gold is repeated nine times between uh, verse 14 and the end of the chapter. Uh, We have the 666 talents of gold that Solomon receives each year. In verse 15, we learn of all the shields of gold that he makes, verses 16 and 17. We hear of his ivory throne with all the the lions covered in gold in verses 18 to 20. 
And then verse 21 sort of <laughs> summarizes just how much gold there is. Verse 21, all King Solomon's goblets were gold, and all the household articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's days. Abundance. And why, why the focus on gold? Well, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Here, this is my this is my sort of best thought about it. I, I think perhaps it relates back to Genesis. Actually, the book of Genesis, uh, sort of while things were still perfect before humanity had rebelled against God, we've got this um, quote from Genesis: "A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon." It winds through the entire land of Havila, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. Okay, take that off. I, I think the point is that the, the gold that Solomon has in his land is, is meant to remind us of the abundance of God's goodness in the, in the land, in Eden, just outside of Eden, before things went wrong. So the gold that we see in Solomon's kingdom is meant as sort of a, a hint to say, look, under Solomon there was a kind of reversal, a small way of what went wrong in the fall. It's God putting things right again. Tell me afterwards if you think that's a stretch too far, but I think that's what the emphasis on gold is. So there's wisdom in this kingdom, there's abundance. But the author of 1 Kings wants us to see that, that this wisdom and abundance reflects back on God. Solomon's not the one who is praised here. Ultimately, it's God who is praised. We see the spread of God's fame. It's clear to everyone that this wonderful kingdom is ultimately the Lord's doing. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9 of chapter 10. Look how the Queen of Sheba praises God. Praise be to the Lord your God who has done all of this. Way back when, in uh, well, just a couple of chapters ago, Solomon, Solomon's hope was that when God blessed Israel, all the nations would see that blessing and they would, they would praise not Israel but the God who blessed them. And in the Queen of Sheba, we begin to see that happening already. God's fame is spreading. And in verse 24, that seems to be the same point. Verse 24 of chapter 10. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God put in his heart. So we take stock of Solomon's golden age. And the Queen of Sheba puts it, puts it well. Verse 4. Chapter 10, when the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. Well, literally, actually, in the Hebrew, is there, there was no breath in her. She saw the, the wonder of Solomon's kingdom and she was breathless it is that good and God blesses a kingdom it takes your breath away the question is though I wonder how the first readers of 1 and 2 Kings would have felt about this 
Uh, remember what we said last week. See, the books of 1 and 2 Kings were probably compiled about 500 years later after what they're describing. They were compiled when the nation of Israel had been sent into exile by God, sent off into Babylon. I mean, all this talk of Solomon's breathtaking kingdom was by then just a hazy, dim cultural memory. What what were they to make of that? I mean, at best, this description of Solomon's kingdom, wouldn't it just uh, sort of evoke sadness for the glory that had been lost? We see, the thing is, what the first readers of 1 and 2 Kings needed to know is precisely what we need to know if we're to keep our hope in what is coming. And that is the second main point on your handout. Life under God's king will be even more glorious. You see, the the author of 1 and 2 Kings wasn't the only person writing bits of the Bible when Israel were in exile. It wasn't just historians whom the Holy Spirit was inspiring to write the Bible. There were other men speaking. Men like Jeremiah were prophesying. Men like Ezekiel were prophesying. Before them, even men like Isaiah were prophesying. And they were saying things. They were prophesying. They were painting pictures of the world to come. The likes of which preaching the world had never heard before. They were telling word pictures of a king who was coming, whose wisdom surpassed Solomon. They were painting pictures of a kingdom coming, whose splendor, whose breathtaking majesty put Solomon's in the shade. They were painting pictures of a world that was coming, that God was going to, and only God was going to make. You see, Solomon's wisdom attracted the plaudits from other dignitaries of the Middle East. The prophets tell us of the wisdom of the king who is to come, whose wisdom wisdom is going to be so great that he's able to judge the world. Listen to this from Isaiah 11. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of power. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. See, the prophets spoke of a glorious time that would surpass even the abundance of King Solomon's kingdom. Have a listen to this from Isaiah 60. Lift up your eyes and look about you. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your land. Young camels of Midian and Ephah and all from Sheba will come bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. So the prophets told of a time that was even more abundant than life in King Solomon's kingdom. And it's interesting, this is sort of sort of in brackets, if you like, in the sermon. It's interesting, isn't it? The Bible doesn't the Bible doesn't condemn the finer things of life. It doesn't say that wealth is not a wonderful thing. It says it it says wealth is a wonderful thing. It just says that if you spend this life pursuing wealth, you will potentially miss out on true, eternal, lasting abundance. 
in the kingdom to come. Close brackets. So the prophets told of a kingdom to come where wisdom exceeded Solomon's, where the abundance exceeded Solomon's, and the spread of God's fame exceeded the spread of God's fame under Solomon. Listen to this from Jeremiah 33. Then this city, this is God speaking, then this city will bring me renown, joy, praise and honour before all nations on earth that hear of all the good things I do for it. And they will be in awe and will tremble at the abundant prosperity and peace I provide for it. Or Isaiah 60. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. See, as the first readers looked back on Solomon's kingdom, they were at exactly the same time inspired to look forward to the glory of the kingdom that God promised was coming. A kingdom that was even more glorious. And to those descriptions I've just read, you could add descriptions of this kingdom that talk of joy, that is like the joy that we, that, that, that men and women feel when the first fruits of the harvest are brought in. You could add descriptions of forgiveness to any who lean on the Lord. Forgiveness such that sin that is like scarlet is washed as pure as snow. You could speak of restoration such that human beings, hearts that are like stone, are transplanted and hearts of love are given to them. You could speak of the permanence of this kingdom that will never be shaken. You could speak of the victory over enemies that will come in this kingdom. Victory over all enemies, even the greatest enemy of humanity, death itself. So the people who first read 1 and 2 Kings were at the same time being told, no, keep hope, there is a better kingdom coming. And that, of course, is what we are told today, 2,500 years later. Keep hoping there is a better kingdom to come. Because to the descriptions of the prophets, we get descriptions such as the one that um, Aaron read in the book of Revelation. A final vision of what is to come. A final vision of that uh, that kingdom where uh, not just the shields and the throne will be made of gold. But the streets, even the streets and the walls of this kingdom will be like pure gold, as clear as glass. Whatever that means, I'm not entirely sure. It is picture language, of course, but it's picture language that is made to make us realise that this kingdom that is coming is... Wow. See, that's the thing. I'd ask you to imagine it. And I hope you do. I hope you do spend time reading the end of Revelation. Regularly, semi-regularly, to keep your mind fixed on what is to come. I'd ask you to imagine it. But that verse that is at the top of your uh, service sheets that Andre started with, that verse tells me you won't be able to properly imagine it. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. The Queen of Sheba saw Solomon's kingdom and it took her breath away. What do you think it will feel like when you who trust in Jesus step across the threshold of God's kingdom for the first time on that final day? It'll be magnificent. 
So we've looked back to Solomon's kingdom, we've looked forward to the kingdom that is even better to come. What about today as we finish? What about today? I want to speak to two groups of people as we finish. The first is those who say, yeah, whatever, this, whatever, Matt, this is just, this is just pie in the sky when you die. Uh, I don't believe in Jesus or him being the king or this coming kingdom. Yeah, I, w- I would if I could see that now, obviously. But I can't. I'll speak to any of you who think that, first of all. And forgive me the bluntness of this. this is, I mean, I think I can get away with it because actually it's the bluntness of Jesus. Jesus would say, actually, you've already seen enough. You already know enough about me to know that what I say about this coming kingdom is true. So have a, have a look at what Jesus said to some people while he was on earth. This is obviously before the, before the final kingdom. Jesus, Some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. Jesus replied, the queen of the south, that's the queen of Sheba, will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now one greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is making the point, look, the queen of Sheba just heard from afar about King Solomon's wisdom. And she bothered to make that thousand mile trek to check him out for herself. And I think Jesus' challenge would be, well, if you, if you wouldn't call your, yourself a Christian, could I ask you to ponder whether the wisdom of Jesus that you have already heard about from afar, as it were, is enough to make you bother to check him out properly as an adult for yourself? I mean, you already know, all of us know how wise Jesus is, don't we? Really, when you think about it. All of us know that the, the stories about humanity that he told resonate with the human spirit, such that even 2,000 years later, they are amongst the most profound stories and insights that humanity has ever received. All of us know that the ethics that Jesus taught, love your neighbor, do unto others as you'd have them do unto yourself, all of us know that they form the ethics of at least modern Western civilization. We all know how wise Jesus is, and surely that is enough that it should provoke you to take that journey to come and see him for yourself. And it's great that Dickie mentioned honest questions. If you have never as an adult made that journey to Jesus, as it were, to check him out for yourself, well, that wouldn't be a better time than coming along for the next three Sundays to do that. But as we, the last group of people, as we finish, are those who who do trust Jesus as their king, who do know there is a better kingdom to come. The message of today is stay hope-filled. Stay hope-filled. That's where we need to finish. That is why the first readers of one Kings needed to look forward. They needed to look forward because, like that little girl, my lecturer's little girl, they were in danger of losing hope. The first readers of 1 Kings were in danger of losing hope. They couldn't see what was coming and they needed to be reminded. See, they needed to be reminded because they were living in exile in a foreign land. They were living amidst a people who were dismissive, ambivalent, sometimes aggressively hostile to their faith. The temptations for them to grow cold in their faith 
would have abounded. I wonder as I as we look at these temptations, I wonder if you think they're similar to ours. Temptations for them would have been what could be wrong with assimilating with the culture around us which doesn't share our trust in the Lord? What is the point of standing out as being different in the workplace, in how we use our time, in what our priorities are, in how devoted we are to God's people? Wouldn't their temptations be that they should just put their trust in the same gods as the people around them? Whether those gods were the Babylonian deities or the more prosaic small g gods of wealth and security. Wouldn't they be wondering, where is God anyway? Shouldn't we just live for the moment, for the fleeting pleasures of sex, promotions, a beautiful home, well-educated kids? I think their temptations were not so very different from ours, were they? And we, like them, need, as it were, to be lifted up and put on God's shoulders and see this breathtaking kingdom that God has promised. The God who cannot lie or change his mind has promised his coming. And we need to live in light of that certain future. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know that we are creatures who are too easily satisfied, who will happily play around with the things of this world, the things that seem to offer so much, but whose pleasure we know deep down is only fleeting. Father, we pray that you will help us to be men and women who put our hope in this glorious, Christ-centered kingdom that is to come. That our priorities, our wallets, our diaries will all dance to the tune of the kingdom that is coming. Amen.